focus this morning will be verses 25 and 26 down through verse 6 of chapter 6. Galatians 5, 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load and let, each, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would instruct us and teach us in these things. We ask, uh, perhaps as Moses did, Lord, if you do not go up, then I will not go up, he said. If you do not go up before us and proclaim to us your word and your power and your glory, we will not be able to see that glory. We will not be able to understand. We ask that you would illumine us, open the word to us, give us that light that we may truly understand and believe. We ask that you would do these things for the building up of your church. In Christ's name, amen. What is a spiritual life? What does it mean to be spiritual? Well, some have taken that to be a self or individual quest for some type of self-fulfillment. There are those who go to monasteries or they go and sit up on a mountaintop and they meditate or think that somehow that is a spiritual life. Some regard it as going to church when there is the power hour. It's an hour a week of spiritual power. Some are, even in our day, crying for us to return to ancient liturgies, to go back to time when there was chants or there were choirs or other types of traditional ceremonies. Some equate spiritual life only when there is miracle healings. Others suppose that it is some time of second blessing. But Paul's argument here, I believe, is that in the life of every Christian, the spirit is essential. That the spiritual life is the expected life for every Christian. The Spirit is essential to his, not only his life, but his very existence. We can trace somewhat of Paul's argument if we look back at Galatians chapter 3. In verse 3, he chastises them and says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So our spiritual life is to begin in the Spirit. 
He says in verse 13 of chapter 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There is a continuing idea of receiving the promise of the Spirit through faith, of walking with that Spirit. In chapter 5, verse 5, he says, For we, through the Spirit by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. There's the expected future, the, the day, the great getting up day when we will see the Lord, the expectation of righteousness for every believer. And in verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, You were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Out of that walking with the Spirit, out of that having the Spirit, we are to love one another and serving one another. And he says in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk under his leadership. Walk under his guidance. The Spirit gives a direction for our walk. Direction for our life. Again, it's a way of life or a particular pattern or path, road for us to follow in the spiritual life. And then in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, we see that great... Uh, list of things in which the Spirit wants us to grow and, and produce this fruit in us. New ways of thinking, new ways of feeling, new ways of behaving. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, he says, there is no law. The Spirit-dominated life is the life it's the spiritual life, the life of the Spirit. And he says, if, in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Some of your versions have in the margin, the, the walk there is a different word than it is in verse 16 of chapter 5. Walking by the Spirit is more looking at that which is the condition that we have the Spirit. He is the helper. He is the advocate. He is the one who comes alongside. And here the word is different. It says, and it would be, I think, better translated in the New American Standard instead of let us also walk by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That's the idea behind this word. Um, notice that, that it's a rhetorical statement. It has the if-then, conditional statement. If we live by the Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. He doesn't say since. And there are those who, who believe that you know, maybe Paul is trying to get us to see that you know, it, it, we could become complacent. Oh, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I live by the Spirit. That's what it means to be uh, spiritual, to live a spiritual life. But he wants us, I think, to ask the question of ourselves, is this true of me? Am I one who keeps in step with the Spirit? Am I one who has the Spirit as my helper, as my guide, and do I keep in step with Him? 
Literally, the word, and again, it's that word we've seen a number of times in Galatians, uh, stoikoimen, which means to fall in line with or to um, be in line with. It, it was used in a military sense to advance in battle order. And the sense was an order imposed by an external authority as a standard for your conduct. Now, I've never been in the military, but I have understood that there are times when, uh, when they're training or they're on a mission, they must keep in step. That there is someone who is leading, and there is time when they keep in, not only in step with the leader, but keep in cadence. Not only with a big heavy pack on their back, not only over rough terrain, but it, there's no opportunity. The idea here is that those who are keeping in step with the leader don't have the privilege of saying, are we yet? Are we there yet? Yeah. The leader is going to lead them where he wants and needs them to be. And the only thing that those who are following needs to do is to keep in step. To keep with him. He is on the path that he intends. You stay in step with him. And we need to remember that the old age of the flesh, our old man of the flesh, is still in conflict with the new creation determined by the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit is our helper, if he is our guide, let us keep in step with the desires of the Holy Spirit. Living by the Spirit is the condition, I think, he lays out here. Keeping in step with the Spirit is act actively manifesting the life that is worthy of our calling as Christians. Or another way to think of it is our outer life must be in harmony with the inner life of the Spirit. Our outer life, the way we live and behave and feel and think, must be in step with the character of the Holy Spirit. And He will supply the grace to keep us in step. When I first was looking at this verse a couple of weeks ago, the first uh, illustration that came to my mind was from the old English preacher Jeremiah Burroughs. I believe that he lived in the 1600s, but I'm not very good at history, as some of you know. But he lived in a, a small town, a village town. He was talking in one of his commentaries about the walk of the Christian, how this idea of keeping in step with the Spirit and he was illustrating it by saying he'd go on a walk with his dog. But he said, you know, and I can't do, I'm sorry, I can't do a British accent. But he says, I walk three miles, me dog walks eight. And that's the way some Christians are, are they not? They're wandering around the path. They're sniffing at everything. They're looking up every tree and down every hole. And they're not in step with their master. And, and Paul would say to us, but no, if your guide is the Holy Spirit, keep in step with him. The, the psalmist says it a little bit differently and, and chides us in this. In chapter 32, he says, I will instruct you. This is the Lord speaking to David. 
I, I think in this psalm, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Keep in step with the Spirit is, is not like us having the bit and bridle and be jerked back into the right path. But it ought to be the norm for every Christian to keep in step. Again, I was never in the military, but I was in the high school marching band. And I can remember freshman year, we had four or five uh, sessions before we even went to camp. We went to one of those old camps where the mattresses hadn't been changed since the Roosevelt administration. The first one. And we would go out to the field to learn how to march. And we spent hours in the hot sun, trudging, trotting up and down on the red clay. And at the end of that session, I remember that first day, sweating and tired, looking back at where we had been, just been, and realized that we had managed to keep in step for five yards. Six steps we all made in two hours of practice. What I'm saying is, keeping in step is, is not just, it's not an easy thing to do. We, we, we have to know how the Spirit is leading. We have to know how He wants us to walk. We have to know the direction that He wants us to go. One of our fellow freshmen had an agonizing time in that first year of band because he could not remember his left from his right. And in the band, you must remember which foot you have to lead off with or you're going to be out of step. And Buzz Pickens, and I don't know his real name even to this day, but Buzz Pickens, while we were marching and we were learning, he stood in front of an old oak tree and he stood there for half hour at a time on a daily basis because he could not remember his left from his right. He would stand in front of the tree and announce to the tree, this is my right hand, this is my left hand, this is my right hand, this is my left. Not all of us are prepared to march and keep in step with the Spirit. Now, to be sure, the Spirit doesn't expect all of us to have the same stride length and keep the same cadence all the time. But the Spirit does expect that we will take instructions from Him in the Word of Truth, the Scriptures, that we will come to Him and through Him to Christ by the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, that we will participate in fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we will learn to pray and talk to God by His power, and that we will come together as brothers and sisters in the Lord and worship, and thereby we will be trained in keeping in step with the Spirit, because we will be in connection with Him. I believe, and the reason that I have chosen to divide my passage between or continuing from chapter 5 into chapter 6 is I believe that Paul is opening a little window into what the Christian community ought to look like. 
what Christians ought to do, what it really means to keep in step with the Spirit. Because the Christian life is one of responsibility and accountability. Paul uses the word and he brings it forward in a number of sentences, one another. Our responsibility is to one another, each other. And our accountability is to watch yourself, look out for your own self. And it may sound contradictory, and Paul, at first blush, I think, sounds contradictory in these first few verses of chapter 6. But I hope that we will see that he is not, that it's not contradictory, they're complementary statements. He says in verse 26, uh, he gives a warning. Let us not become boastful. That's the New American Standard. I think the word would better be, let us not become deceitful or conceited, sorry, uh, not become conceited. He, he, he warns us against behavior which is inconsistent with keeping step with the Spirit. It's the attitude of the person who thinks they deserve praise and some kind of renown but have no right to expect it. He says, let us not become conceited, challenging one another, envying one another. The, the, the word there again is, is empty praise for conceit or boastful. It, it, it literally is what it says it means. It, it's an empty praise. They have no basis for praising themselves. And in the Greek, he brings the words one another forward to emphasize them. One another challenging, one another envying is not keeping in step with the Spirit. It reminds us of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, does it not? That he warns us against selfish ambition and he does use the word vain conceit or empty conceit. We should not provoke one another. We should not envy one another. A person who is conceited has action and motive. The action is his provoking. When, when someone is conceding, there, there is this attitude uh, of aggression, is it not? Uh, you've, you've seen people uh, challenging. It, it, in, a, in a modern vernacular, it would be, bring it on. Let's see who's tougher. Let's see who's better. Let's see who the expert is. That's the provoking, the provocation of another. The motive is envy. And what is at the heart of envy? Remember, first of all, it's in one of the it's in the list above the deeds of the flesh in verse 19 through 21. But it's a, a rejoicing in another's misfortune. It's thinking of ourselves as superior, but it has a joy in that superiority. My attention in one of the commentaries was drawn to a cartoon. It shows a dog sitting at a bar, and the dog addresses the reader by saying, it's not enough that dogs must win, but it is also that cats must lose. And many Christians have that attitude. It's not enough for me to win and show that I'm superior, but it, you must be put down. That's the idea behind the provocation and the envy 
But Paul says, let us not become. He doesn't say that we are, but he says, let us not become. It is not in keeping with keeping in step with the Spirit. But Paul is not without affection. Paul is not without uh, being a man who loves people. He, he addresses them in chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, <laughs> we've been talking about some military-type terms. And, and I'm, you know, you may not like it, but I think he's addressing them as a band of brothers and sisters. We're on the same team. We're on the, in the same unit. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's calling us to what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. It's a hypothetical situation. I don't think Paul is thinking of any particular sin or any situation that is going on right now at this writing in the area of Galatia. But it may arise at any time. And this verse is, is very hard to kind of parse out. What does he mean if a man is caught in any trespass? And what does he mean by spirit people? You who are spiritual. Well, the best, again, that I can understand these things is that he means someone who is caught unexpectedly in any sin. And it may be translated a misstep. We are trying to keep in step with the Spirit, but we are not all going to be perfectly in step. There are times, again, when we were marching, it didn't matter if on the practice field or, you know, not every football field in Mississippi was built the same way. There would be potholes, there would be divots where the, you know, if we had to share the field with the football guys. And sometimes you'd step in a hole and you would be out of step. You would be caught unawares. And I, again, I, I don't want to minimize the heinousness of sin. But not every sin has that habitual, hard attitude to it. There are times when we find ourselves in a sin against our better judgment, not habitually, not because we've been um, even expecting it, but we fall or we stumble. And he's saying that we ought to come and restore such a one. You who are spirit people, you who are spiritual and it, many of the commentators want to take us back to 1 Corinthians 3 and want to talk about categories of Christians as being spiritual Christians and carnal Christians. And I, I don't think that Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 or in Galatians 6 makes that distinction. I think what he's saying, if you walk by the Spirit because you are a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit inside you, all Christians ought to be thinking in this direction, looking to do this thing. It's not a separate spiritual, spirit-filled super-Christian that he's talking to. But all Christians, anyone who has the Spirit of Christ. The word used for restore means to put in order. It may be the mending of a net, 
but it's most often used as the setting of a bone. When you have broken a bone to set it straight, so that what? You can be that limb, and you with that limb being healed can be put into useful condition again. What does he want Christians to do? Well, I wrote in your outline to be spiritual surgeons. And if that scares you, I hope it does. Because there are cautions that go with this exhortation as well. Paul wants us to bring to forgiveness and restoration in fellowship our fellow believers who have stumbled, who have misstepped, who have been caught in any trespass. His warning is that we would do it in a spirit of gentleness. Not in a haughty manner. Not in a dictatorial style where we say, ha, now you've been taught a lesson. Not in a condemning attitude. But in a spirit of gentleness knowing that it could be us. We're called upon to do something that requires skill. And it requires discipline, and it requires a certain sense, I believe, of understanding whether we have those skills and we ought to be the ones to do it or leave it to others. Sadly, I think a lot of churches choose other directions rather than restoration. Some, and we do, I think, as individual Christians, sometimes we just want to ignore a sin in somebody else. I don't want to know it's happening. I don't, I don't want to hear about it. Sometimes we just take it lightly. Ah, oh, you know, it's okay. God still loves you. Sometimes we want to use it as fuel for gossip. Have you heard about so-and-so? Guess what happened? Sometimes we are like onlookers at the scene of an accident. Look at that! Look what happened! Hey, you better get that looked at. Does a surgeon do that? Does someone who comes alongside, is that the attitude? But as I say, I believe that it requires a special set of skills. And sadly, in the church, there are those who jump in too quickly and think that they know it all. I was even surprised in seminary, and I took the course on biblical counseling. The teacher, the professor who taught us, said that as soon as we get our degree, we ought to hang out our shingle, not only as a counselor for those in our own church, but throughout the community. And I looked around me and I thought, man, <laughs> some of us have no real experience dealing with people. Some of us don't even have families. Some of us have no experience really living life with others. And I think there is a caution there that it requires maturity, it requires insight, it requires discretion, and sometimes experience. Because as one of our former presidents said, and I think he said it totally wrongly, we cannot just go up to anyone and say, I feel your pain. Because we may not have felt their pain. Do not say it. 
but we can be involved in gathering those who can restore such a one. It requires meekness, gentleness. Someone has defined, and I've used this as my own definition for gentleness, is, quote, power under control. It's not that we're mamby-pamby. It's not that we're weak or to a point where we can't or powerless. But it's power under control. It's the appropriate use of convincing someone of their error, of their sin, and gently guiding them to keep in step with the Spirit again. It's an other-mindedness. It's a recognizing and leading to a goal of restoration to useful fellowship. But Paul says, even in this, is a warning, watch yourself. Watch yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now the big question here is, what does he mean? What are we tempted to do? If we're not watchful, what temptation might we fall into? Well, there are some who look at this and say, your temptation is to blame and shame. To look at that Christian as he is down and say, look at you. Blame them for everything. Shame them in front of others instead of taking them aside one-on-one -on -one and helping. But I don't think that that's what's in view here in the context. Some people say that we're tempted to fall into the same sin. And yes, in our society, you, you can read about those who counsel fall into the very same sin that they're counseling people to stay out of. And that does happen. But again, in the context, I think that Paul is warning us that we are tempted to self-righteous pride. To a superiority over others. That I, you know, I've, I've been around the block. I know what I'm doing. I'm okay. I can stay out of these things. I'm above it all. And yet, as I've already told you, as we were in the high school band and marching by Buzz Pickens standing in front of the old oak tree, trying to remember his right from his left, there I was with my fellow freshman making fun of him, saying, hey, you know, he's got a weakness. He just, he'll never make it. We go to the games and he's one of the replacements. He's one of the alternates, which basically meant you don't get on the field. But fortunately, our band director was one who came alongside. And during sophomore year, he took Buzz Pickens aside, worked with him one-on-one, -on -one, gave him responsibilities within the band to set up the color guard, which did not existed to that point. Not only to the point of just being in it, but in charge of it. Helping with the choreography, helping with the costumes, helping with how they would integrate with the band itself. And by the competition time, the band might get a good honor, but the color guard was getting top honors. And by the end of junior year, one of the most coveted awards for the band was earned by Buzz Pickens. He was named top marcher of the year.
your liability in the spiritual life is to fall through temptation of pride and a motivation to put yourself above others rather than to restore others to useful condition. Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 6, Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Restoring means that sometimes we're called upon to carry the load associated with their sin and recovery. Sometimes we're called upon to be field surgeons, to bind them up, to set things straight. Sometimes we're called to carry the stretcher. And I believe that Paul is not just talking about someone else's weaknesses, but their sorrows, their trials, their difficulties, their problems, their cares, their worries, their failures, their depression. It's a constant practice that Christians ought to do in the life of the church. Whether it involves physical things, emotional issues, or spiritual issues. Sometimes it's hard to put that into a, a physical context, a, a, a real context. Sometimes it's simply praying. Sometimes earnestly on our knees before the Lord to help them to strengthen them, to help them understand the scriptures, to help them understand their sin. Sometimes it's just listening, just lending that ear and letting somebody talk it through and think it through as a sounding board. Sometimes it may be chores that we do, physical things that we do, meals, working on somebody's house, mowing their lawn, so they have time to heal and to recover. And sometimes it does take a sharing of our own biblical insight, our own gleanings from the scriptures to help them see that our strength is not in our own insight, but in God and His leading. I tried to come up with a, a, an alliteration, and I could only think of advocacy, assistance, and assembling. Advocacy is a support. Sometimes other Christians just need to know that we're there. That we still acknowledge, you are my brother, you are my sister. Sometimes there's the physical assistance where you're carrying the load and you're not afraid to get your hands dirty. But there's also the gathering together, the meeting together before the Lord and crying out to Him. And Paul says, in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Again, these are hard passages. What does Paul mean by fulfilling the law of Christ? We've had a lot of teaching on the law of Moses. And I believe that he is looking at the law of Christ as distinct from the law of Moses. The law belonging to Christ. The law stemming from the teachings, the commandments, the life and example of Jesus Christ. But I think it's also the law that was given through the inspired writers like Paul, like Peter, like John in the New Testament. The teaching which comes from the heart of the gospel. It's to be applied to specific situations under the direction and influence of the Holy Spirit.
The law of Christ equals what Christ taught, what he clarified, what he lived concerning the laws given by Almighty God. And I think in this way we find out who our brothers and sisters are. As we see them coming alongside to restore, as we see them carrying burdens of others, we find out who our real friends are. I came across a writing about an article that was written in 2008 in the New York Times magazine. Apparently the journalist uh, was looking one day at his Facebook account and noticed that he had 700 friends. So he decided to invite all 700 friends to a get-together at his place. And in response to his Facebook uh, invitation, he got 15 people who said they would definitely come. 60 people said they were really thinking about it really hard. And so on the nights that he set for all of his friends to come, one person showed up. And she wasn't really a friend, she was a friend of a friend. And when she realized she was the only one there, she made her lame excuses and she left. 700 friends, but they were all fake. None of them were genuine. None of them really were his friend. And Paul warns us, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Avoid the pride that comes with not understanding who you are. While being nothing, he says, you think you're something, but you're deceiving yourselves. The math teacher and me tried to make an equation out of this verse. Self-importance based on self-ignorance equals self-deception. We love ourselves. We like to think about ourselves. We preserve ourselves. We pamper ourselves. We, we treat ourselves better than anybody else treats us. But our self-importance can be based on self-ignorance. We don't know our weaknesses. We don't know what we're like. God gives us grace and the Spirit gives us guidance and we want to take all the credit. Critical self-reflection is what is needed. But what do we do? Paul says, we want to compare ourselves to others. But let each one examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, not in regard to another. I don't think Paul is saying, go home and make a list of all your accomplishments and have your own little boasting party and celebration. I think the, the, the point and the emphasis is not in regard to one another. Always comparing ourselves to others. Because what does that normally do? How do we elevate ourselves? We stand on other people. We jump on them. We use them as stepping stones. We use them to elevate ourselves. But we have to test the genuineness of our own work. What was the cry in first century from the philosophers? 
know thyself. I don't think Paul is any different here. Take into account the reality that your freedom and your service have brought for you, but where are they? They're through Christ. They're by the power of the Holy Spirit. He redeemed us. He set us free. He gave us His Spirit. Why? Why do we need to compare ourselves to others? Anything that constitutes a reason for boasting must rest solely on self-scrutiny, not in comparison with what others are doing. Every believer, and again, I think this is controversial, what does Paul mean? When he says, for each one shall bear his own load. First he's saying, restore one another, bear one another's burdens, and now he's saying, bear your own load? Well, the words are different between bearing one another's burdens and bearing his own load. Bearing one another burden has the idea of heaviness, things that, are, that we do outside of ourselves, that carrying of the stretcher, that carrying of burdens, that carrying other people's sorrows and worries. Here, it's more like carrying your pack. And again, those of you who have been in the military can probably explain this better than I can. But when you're on the march, when you're in battle, you're carrying your own pack. You're carrying those things that you're required to carry for you. That's carrying your own load. And there are times when you carry that pack, and I've never marched with 60 or 80 pounds on my back. Okay, It's got to be brutal. But you're still expected, even with that on your back, to carry others' burdens. The Christian life is, is, is not, it's not self-fulfillment. It's not sitting on a mountaintop staring at your navel. There's this accountability and this responsibility that we all have as believers. Each one will carry his own load. I believe Paul is saying that is the sum total of your conduct and service to God. It is your life. It's what your life will be at the great day, the <coughs> summation at that great day of judgment. What is the sum of your life? And I, again, it's not contradicting verse 2. It's complementing verse 2. Because in this life, we must one another, each other. Again, the statement should stand as a solemn and sobering prospect. To stand before Almighty God on the day of judgment. Am I boasting in my own accomplishments, my own justification, what I have done? Or am I simply saying, I've only done that which a servant should have done. I've carried my own load. And I have kept in step with the Spirit to restore and carry the burdens of others. And in keeping with that, he says in verse 6, And let the one who has taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. It might be passive. It might be saying... Share in all good things with those who teach. It would be sharing in spiritual things. It would be sharing in the enlightenment we have by the Spirit in the Word. 
the wisdom and understanding of the scriptures and the glory of God. But it also may be active. Share with the one who teaches all good things. And in that case he would be talking about material things. He would be talking about you who have been taught the word help carry those things that those who teach can't carry. Financial and material blessings. Paul does not speak of salary packages here. He, he's not speaking of, you know, you need to make sure HR has a good benefits package for your pastor. The word he uses is sharing. You will know the word. It, it is the same root for the word koinonia. Koinonetto means sharing or participating. Let him be in communication or participation with those who teach the word. Those who receive the gospel instruction are responsible for providing their teachers, their pastors, with financial and material support. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, the laborer is worthy of his wages. The hearers, the learners, the disciples have an obligation to bear the teacher's burdens in this way. And so again, I hope you can see that the life lived by the Spirit is not a life of second blessing. It's not a life of self-fulfillment. It's not a life of standing on the sidelines and waiting for the hour of power. But it consists in restoring to fellowship fallen sinners to the body of Christ in useful service to Him. It is bearing one another's burdens as they work through the struggles and sins and trials of life. It is considering others more important than ourselves and sharing all good things with those who teach. This is what it means, I believe, to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we... We struggle to understand these things. We struggle because we're nervous, we're afraid, or we don't like to get involved. And yet you've called us in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to walk and keep in step with the Holy Spirit as He guides, as He leads, as He empowers us, as He helps us to do these things, not for our glory, <laughs> Not that we would be seen as anything, but for the glory of Christ and the building up of his church. And again, we ask, we ask humbly that you would do it. That you would perform these things in our midst for your church, not just here, but in this community, in this country. That you would build your church to be a glory and honor to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.